I'm Susan Branscombe, and this is Leading She. It's an industry that was founded by white men for white men. And and that's not meant to be male bashing. It's just, it is, it's history. Um, you know, keep in mind, we, we didn't even have the use of credit cards in our own name till 1974. Heather Edinger is an accomplished executive and as founder and CEO of Luma Wealth, she is passionate about being a strident advocate of women's financial health. She wrote a best-selling book entitled Lumination, Shining a Light on a Woman's Journey to Financial Wellness, which provides great advice about how our financial health is connected to all other areas of our lives. She claims the financial advisory industry has missed the expectations of women and made mistakes about assuming what is important to us. Heather talks about a gender bias compensation situation she experienced and what she did. She acknowledges that women have to work much harder to achieve just as much as men. Heather uses a 24 to 48 hour rule before she responds to time commitment requests and recommends women learn how to say no more often. Enjoy this great podcast with Heather Edinger. Today on Leading She, I am hosting Heather Edinger, founder and CEO of Luma Wealth. Welcome, Heather. Thank you, Susan. I am thrilled to be here and looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, yeah, so am I. Can't wait. All right, I'm going to read your bio and uh, then we'll get started with some questions. After 30 years of national recognition and thought leadership and innovation in financial services for women and families, and as a proven leader of multiple businesses, Heather Edinger specializes in helping clients align their resources around their family values to live an abundant life. Using practical tools and resources, she teaches women, their families, and their advisors how to deepen connection and ultimately transforms clients' lives. Her focus is on the intersection of women's financial wellness with her quality of life and overall wellness. Heather has written a best-selling book entitled Lumination, Shining a Light on a Woman's Journey to Financial Wellness, and co-authored two significant Women of Wealth studies highlighting individualized needs of women. She has been featured in many publications, including the Wall Street Journal, Barron's, and Bloomberg, and is a frequently requested speaker for industry associations, women's initiatives, and wellness events. Her national recognition includes being honored as a, quote, woman to watch and, quote, icon and innovator by Investment News, receiving the Ruth Bader Ginsburg Award for the Women's Vote Project and, recently, accepting a Changemaker Award from Savvy Ladies. Heather remains an ardent supporter of her alma maters, including Dartmouth College, where she earned a Bachelor of Arts and is a member of Centennial Women and Laurel School for Girls, where she has received their prestigious Distinguished Alumna Award and serves as an Emeritus Trustee, passionate about advancing women and minorities. Heather currently devotes her advisory time to a number of organizations, including Women's Business Collaborative, the Women's President's Organization, Schwab Advisor Services, DEI Advocacy Board, and Racing Towards Diversity. She has served on numerous nonprofit and corporate boards. Heather lives in Shaker Heights, Ohio with her husband, Jeff, and considers raising their three children to be empathetic and giving adults to be her greatest and most rewarding accomplishment. In her free time, she can be found playing ice hockey, snow skiing, and hiking. So Heather, welcome again. Thank you, Susan. I'm thrilled to be here. And if this conversation's as fun as our first one, our listeners will enjoy it thoroughly. <laughs> I loved meeting you, and I'm glad Cheryl, Dr. Cheryl Kingsburg introduced us. And uh, 
yeah, we have a lot in common, and this this is going to be fun. Congratulations, you know, on a successful career and 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 being a fellow entrepreneur. Um, I've always had a special place in my heart for women-owned businesses. So, as you hear your bio, um, any any reflections at all on your career and any highlights you want to cover? Well, I think as I reflect on my career, you, you might guess it's not as if I look at, oh, I did that great financial plan and that that changed my life. I think the highlights for me are the work that I've done around advocacy for women as clients and advocacy for women as advisors. And I was reflecting the other day and thinking, you know, when you try to do good, you often are around a lot of other really good people. So I think that's also been just a, a highlight of my career is the team that I work with and the women that are doing this advocacy work alongside of me are, are just passionate people who want to do the right thing and and change the quality of life for women. And at the end of the day, that's what we're really focused on is educating and empowering women so they can live this more abundant life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really, it's fascinating. I um, I read your book, Lumination, and I'm going to, and it's a great book. I put a nice review on Amazon, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. I know how important that is. I'm going to read an excerpt from the book, which I think is really profound and could really uh, get a good start to our discussion. You quote, and I'm going to quote the book. You say, despite this growing influence and power, the financial industry has done little to improve its appeal to women. Financial advisors remain the most distrusted of any industry. It is time for a dramatic change. It is a time to create an experience that looks at the whole life plan, our history, our money, our money journey, our hopes and dreams, our triggers and barriers, our stages of life, and how we can improve communication with those who are important to us in a meaningful way. The Illumination Plan, where you can develop your own journey and build your personal wealth life plan, appeals to women and men who want a healthier, happier relationship with their human capital and financial capital to achieve their hopes and dreams. So, yeah, really profound. A lot of, lot of stuff in there. So, really, it's, not, it's the kind of thing where your financial health and wealth is not an isolated thing separate from everything else in your life, right? So... Um, first of all, let's start with um, a question around this. I was surprised to hear it said that uh, why would why would financial advisors be among the most distrusted of any industry? Do you think? <laughs> well, it's an industry that was founded by white men for white men, and and that's not meant to be male bashing. It's just. It is. It's history. Um, you know, keep in mind, we, we didn't even have the use of credit cards in our own name till 1974. So, I think we have to keep that perspective. And because of that, when you look at what the barriers are for women, there's a lot of jargon which we know. There's a lot of condescending behavior, both from quite frankly, our media, as well as advisors who kind of are, don't worry, your pretty little head, Susan, will take care of this, which women are too smart to acquiesce to. And I think, in addition, there are really three key elements. Number one is that they really don't take the time to understand women. And in the first study, that's what we came out with saying 96% of women want to be understood before you give them any advice. I think secondly, 
women have a lack of time. And we can talk more about this later, but that impacts how they are going to approach investments and their advisors. And a lot of advisors will send them the big fat questionnaire or a lot of, you know, fat deck to go through, and she's not going to do it. So there are ways to adapt to that. And, and the third is, I think, um, lack of transparency on fees. Our industry has been notorious for sending out these thick prospectuses, and you can find you know, the fees on about page 47, and they aren't forthcoming. And women just want transparency. Part of the reason mm-hmm. why I use the word lumination and luma in my business, because it means shining a light, having transparency, having accountability. I think it's really important that women demand that because they deserve it. Yes. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. Um, you, you cite a statistics and, I, and I've experienced this and, um, you know, you're talking about the condescending uh, nature and there's there's a quote out there I won't be able to cite who said it but if you can't convince them confuse them <laughs> you know and that's kind of like this if you can't convince them confuse them you know and then you'll get get what you want but you cite a statistic that says women control over half the wealth in the U.S. and are starting companies at a rate of four to one over men and are the lead bread lead breadwinners in over forty percent of households which surprised me to hear that. And you say women have the power to influence and drive change. So women matter, yet, like you say, we've received some, you know, condescending messages. Uh, you know, you can hear gender bias things like women don't really understand money like men do. So, yeah, there's a lot of work to do here. And I'm sure you you cater to, to women and, and advise women without, you know, they're smart. We're smart, right? I mean... You can't. You're not going to get away with trying to hide things uh, and trying to convince us so we can manage money, right? Right. I think you know where this comes from is that women. So if if you look at the number of women that have advisors, it's only about twenty percent. Yet, eighty percent of women leave meetings feeling misunderstood, and as I said, they want to be understood. So that's problem one. But interestingly, Susan, 78% of women say, if my advisor was more focused on quality of life rather than jargon, investments, and performance, I would hire them. So that, I think, is a very telling statistic. And that is why I wrote the book and you've read it. You know, it's not until the appendix that I get into necessarily the how-tos of managing money and managing investments. Because really, you have to do the work up front and you have to have the confidence that you know what you're asking for for you. If women come from the heart and the soul and know what they're asking for is right for them and right for their family, it's going to force change. And so, you know, there are firms out there that are adapting to the changes that are needed. And you and I can talk about this with executive women and business owners in particular, but really the whole gamut. And I think that's what's important. Women are not a niche. We're over 50% of the population and we don't like being lumped together. Your life, my life, my mom's life, my two daughters' lives, 
are all completely different. And we need somebody that shows that understanding and then tailors a plan to each of us individually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting that there are parallels to the financial advisory industry and the medical community. I mean, if you kind of leapfrog back to who introduced me to Dr. Cheryl Kingsburg, it was Dr. Lisa Larkin. In our episode uh, with my interview with Dr. Lisa Larkin, she talked about how the medical community tries to just, you know, plug and play with women. We have many other health issues. We have many other body parts, you know, so we need more attention, right? We need more than 15 minutes with a doctor. And um, yet, you know, the drug trials and so forth are are really geared to men. The, The medical community is really geared to serving men, you know, and it's like, oh, yeah, we have women too, you know. Exactly. So, you know, I, I've, I've heard that they spend approximately two hours on menopause in med school. And uh, as, as you and I can probably both attest to, um, so far as I know, every woman goes through it and <laughs> we all go through it differently. So, yes. um, and it can last years and years. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it sure can. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, you talk about uh, the zones of finance. I thought this was interesting, the comfort zone, uh, which these are these force us to look our, at our relationship to money, the comfort zone, the learning zone, the fear zone, the confidence zone. And I have been in all these zones, but talk about them and in, in like what you talk about in the book with these with these zones. Sure. So I think the the first thing to understand is you don't necessarily you know, move from one zone to the next and never kind of come back. So I start with the fear zone and that's where most women are. When we do our financial literacy programs, it's interesting. It can be a woman running a billion dollar business or it can be a woman who whose spouse just walked out and left her um, without money, without knowledge, et cetera. And these women come in all, you know, kind of hard on themselves and judging themselves. And the reason I call it the fear zone is they don't really know where to start and they don't know what questions to ask to start. And so there's a lot of shame around it and that type of thing. So we need to get them out of that. And so we start with looking at our money values and money priorities. What is the history that we've had and how has it impacted us? And how has it created maybe that feeling of shame? We want to diffuse that. Then we start mm-hmm. going through and saying, okay, let's start with some of the basics. What's your, your net worth or balance sheet look like? What is, um, what's coming into the house? What's going out of the house? What uh, liabilities do you have? What income do you have coming in? And so you just start to answer some of those questions and that gets them into the learning zone. And then you start talking about what other knowledge do they need? Maybe it's an executive woman and she needs uh, to know negotiating uh, policies and ideas uh, to make sure she's getting the compensation she deserves. Or could be that they need to put together an estate plan. It could be any number of things, but that's the learning zone. And when you get into the confidence zone, you have a financial plan, you have an estate plan, they're aligned with what you want, not what your advisor thinks you should have, what you want. And so you know that you can plan for both life's expected transitions, but also that you can be more resilient for the unexpected transitions. Now, you're going to go through a phase, let's say 
you are going into retirement. That's going to pop you back from the confidence zone, probably into the learning zone. What else do I need to know? When can I take Medicare? When can I take Social Security? When those types of questions. And so you'll go back to the learning zone, hopefully with an advisor side by side with you, learn a little bit more about those things, and then you'll get back into the confidence zone. Okay, we made the right decisions. I feel good about where we are, where we're going, and that I have the right plan in place. So Mm -hmm. it's just meant, I don't want to see you go back to the fear zone, but I do want to say that very likely, you're going to pop between the learning zone and the confidence zone the rest of your life. It is not mm-hmm. a set it and forget it plan. Yeah. No, I understand. And, and uh, for me personally, I've been in the fear zone before as an entrepreneur. I owned my company in 2008 and nine, and there was some def- definitely some fear there with uh, earning, you know, earning enough money to cover overhead and maybe make some money, but it was a very difficult time for a lot of people, you know, at that time, and owning a company was not not for the weak of, of heart, uh, for sure. And then now as I've gone into what I call retirement, but really chapter two, you know, learning about when should I take Social Security, you know, when, you know, when am I eligible for Medicare, and then how do I let my money earn enough money for me so I can live the lifestyle I want, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I think I'm there, but I've learned a lot in the last uh, six months, that's for sure. Your father uh, was in the industry, and um, you got to see what it was like um, for him as a financial advisor. And you say in the book, uh, I want to go, quote, I wanted to go into the same industry that my father was in and wanted to develop my own reputation independent of him. So talk about that and why that was important to you. So let me preface it by saying my dad was, you know, my knight in shining armor and very, very close. So when I make that comment, I wanted to go somewhere else. Um, It's actually from a very loving lens, but he also was a force to be reckoned with. He was an entrepreneur himself. And so I, I knew that I needed to go to a city where I wasn't Tom Rolston's daughter, where I could develop my own reputation. And quite frankly, by doing that, develop my own confidence. So I picked Boston, a couple quirky things, city he didn't have connections in, yes, major financial city, which I did want to be in one of the the big cities, because I knew that would be where I'd get the best exposure and experience. And then the third is I'm an ice hockey player. And you know, back in the early 80s, there were not a lot of places women could play ice hockey. So I went off to Boston and, and fortunately had a great deal of success. And that ironically is what brought me back when I had headhunters after me and I was kind of thinking, okay, what's my next chapter? Ironically, that's what brought me back to Cleveland because I could pretty much write my ticket wherever I wanted to go. I took the biggest pay cut in history to come back, but I think that was important for both me and my dad because he didn't want to show preferential treatment for me. And also, I did want to prove myself yet again under the the umbrella of his business. So, I think that was really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great story. Yeah, there's a story about, uh, and some of our younger listeners may not remember Danny Thomas, uh, they may know Marlo Thomas, uh, but uh, look them up. And uh, he was successful uh, in a lot of areas. I think actor, I don't know if he was a singer, but he was successful. And Marlo Thomas, his daughter, was coming along, starting her own career. 
And she said to him, you know, Dad, I am just having trouble. I'm living in your shadow. Everyone's comparing me to you, expecting things of me. And he said, run your own race, baby. Exactly. And, and that's it, isn't it? You know, that you're running your own race and you don't have to live in the shadow. You don't have to be him. You can do what he does in, in the industry, but you can, you know, really um, have your own business independent of his reputation. And he sounds like a very, he was a very charismatic man. Everybody kind of liked him, you know, in your book. Yes, very much so. And I think, you know, I'm really fortunate because when I came back to Cleveland, I quickly figured out, um, by the way, my dad was in the business and I also had another brother in the business at the time. And I thought, well, you know, what, what am I going to do that's different? Like, what, where, where's my calling? Where's my passion? Where's my purpose? It's different than dad or my brother, Tom. And what I quickly got connected with were these female philanthropists who ironically had money and influence in, if you will, the charitable circles, yet their advisors were treating them extremely poorly and not recognizing that the money was theirs. And I also realized that if um, only about 6% of national funding was going to programs for women and girls. So, I started developing financial literacy programs for some of these women's foundations. And then, of course, I came to the realization, well, wow, A, I really love working with women because they will tell it like it is. And it's not this game of, you know, competing and performance. It's really about, hey, living my passion and purpose. And then secondly, um, that I, I could really move the needle. I could really make a difference if I could help educate them and empower them to advocate for social change. So, I started down that path, went to my dad and said, listen, I have this idea. Sure seems like in this business of yours, while you you aren't really discriminating against women, they're not really at the table. We've got mm-hmm. an issue. Even if mm-hmm. um, it's her money, often she's not you know, a lot of male advisors wouldn't invite her to the meeting or she'd be silent the whole meeting. I was like, dad, we need to really think about a future here where we help women find their voice. And mm-hmm. he got it. He got it right mm-hmm. away. And he said, I, I think you've got a really unique perspective here. Run with it. Mm-hmm. And that really was the germination back in the late 80s of what has grown into Luma today. And then, of mm-hmm. course, part of the reason why I wrote the book. Right. Yeah. Wonderful. I'm going to shift our, our talk here to uh, more uh, in the spirit of leading she, more gender bias, gender things going on. And uh, would love to hear your perspective on some of these things. Um, during, during my career at one point in the 80s, I had found out that a male associate uh, was being paid about 40% more than I was uh, accidentally, um, and which really bothered me a lot. And you talk in your book about a story when you found out you were not being compensated equally with a male colleague. And talk about this experience and what advice you would give to, to a woman uh, in, this, in this regard. Well, thank you, Susan, for asking that question, because I think, sadly, 
we are amongst the norm, uh, not the minority. So when I started out as an equity trader, started out on salary, but the whole idea was to go on variable compensation, which is the polite way of saying uh, commissions. All, like all commissions. Yeah. yeah, all commission. And I was trading for institutions. So it wasn't individuals, it was institutions, you know, the Fidelities of the world and Janice and those types of folks. So um, I started out with my salary, you know, took took the offer, started out. And the whole idea, of course, was to go on this variable compensation. So four months in, I walk into my boss's office and I said, okay, I'm ready to go. I'm going to take the leap. And he said, Heather, you can't. I said, well, that's what you told me the objective was. And he said, well, these two guys, I'll change their names to protect the innocent. (laughs) Jeff and John haven't done it yet. And I, all our numbers are up on the wall and I'm scratching my head going, why wouldn't they? I mean, they, they gotta be making more money than this salary. Well, of course I was looking at for my salary, come to find out the two of them both got hired in one year ahead of me at twice my salary. And so that of course made their threshold to go on commission twice mine. And Mm -hmm. so I created this huge kerfuffle in the office because I said, that's your problem. That's not my problem. I'm going on commission because I'm not going to stay at this salary. And uh, so that was the end of their salary as well. But to this day, I will tell you, that is a hot button with me. I do a lot of education around negotiating. We do it with employment attorneys as well so that women know it is not just taking a new job. It's when you get a promotion. It's when you're asked to take on additional responsibilities, all those things. And of course, you and I both know that wherever you start, your raises are based off that, your bonuses are based off that. So if you start with a lower number, you are going to be impacted to the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars to millions over the life of your career. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you on my Luma Advisory Council, another uh, member and I were discussing that we think it cost us a million dollars in compensation. That's a huge number, right? Mm -hmm. In our careers, because of the disadvantages that we faced in terms of compensation, both in, in terms of salary, in terms mm-hmm. of benefits, in terms of bonuses, and in terms of raises. Often mm-hmm. it's perceived, oh, your husband works. If you're in a traditional marriage, you don't need as much of a raise. Yeah. And that's, oh, that's BS. That's really, yeah, old-fashioned. I remember when I interviewed Amy Hansen, who was a, an executive with Macy's, she said that Every one of the offers that she made to men, males, uh, they negotiated the salary. And every single woman took the salary, didn't come back and say, I want more, or I want this, or I want that. Not, not a one. So not to blame women for everything, but, th- but we have to speak up when, when we expect more, deserve more. You know, we have to have our voices here, right, is right. what you're saying. Well, and, and I'll be honest, Susan, I'm finding this now that I... I'm doing uh, some public speaking and getting paid for some of that. And it's it's a whole new world to me because I've got to start it all over again. And mm-hmm. I started out too low once again. And a friend of mine 
turned to me, uh, might be a mutual friend of ours, Cheryl, and said, what, what are you thinking? You know, mm-hmm. you're, you're worth twice what you're asking. And it's, again, just having that confidence and having a girlfriend there being your cheerleader yeah. saying, nope, you're right. going to do it. You're going to ask for it. Right. Yeah. Trusted advisor. Uh, you love working out. Uh, you're physically active. You talked about ice hockey. I think you're the only woman I know that plays ice hockey. I think it's really cool. And you played competitively in Boston, you said. Um, and um, I would just say, what would you say about ice hockey that might have you know, helped you in business? And what would you say to women who, I, I've played sports for my entire life, uh, soccer, tennis, uh, volleyball, all kinds of sports. And you know, there are a lot of parallels to business. Um, and uh, what would you say about playing ice hockey as it relates to business? And what would you tell women about playing playing sports? So ice hockey as it relates to business, I think, actually set me up really well. I did start playing in college. And it was right after, not too long after Title IX. So I will tell you, while we got our own skates, we had a lot of hand-me-down male equipment. And you know, like our hands are much smaller. So getting men's gloves did not serve me very well because my hands just kind of moved all over in them. But it was also just an interesting time to watch the changes that were coming in women's sports. But what I would say about hockey is this, male-dominated sport, you can imagine after college, other than when I got to play in women's leagues in Boston, when I came back to Cleveland, played with all men, it teed me up very well to be in a male-dominated industry. I'm used to it. I've, I've grown up playing actually sports that were more traditionally boys' sports when, when I was young. I, wasn't, I don't have a graceful bone in my body, so I am not the person that can do a lot of the artistic sports that women were pretty much doing when we were growing up. But... Um, I, you know, so I think hockey has really prepared me well for that. And then just in general, you know, what I would say about sports is, I think you and I may have talked about this. First of all, it, the most common characteristic of women leaders is that they played competitive sports. So it's not yep. socioeconomic. It's not their education level. It's that they played sports. And why is that? Well, one, you you have to work on your own individual skills, right? And um, being somebody who has DNA that's only going to take me so far, that meant a lot of practice. Um, and uh, truthfully, I used to, Madeline Albright's daughter, Annie, was one of our goalies. And Annie oh. and I would stay on the ice literally till they kicked us off. And <laughs> I was just practicing my breakaways on Annie until we got thrown off the ice. Um, so, individual skills, but also understanding what your role on the team is. I was an extremely strong skater because I grew up figure skating, but I wasn't a high scorer. I wasn't, you know, I didn't have these mad skills of scoring. And so my role on our team was actually to go against the top line center on the opposing team, which usually would have been one of their best players and just chase them around until, you know, I drove them crazy and try to keep them from scoring. That was my whole job. And then our first line would go out and hopefully score on them. So, you know, it was understanding what my role was. And um, I was a defensive center. And most people think of centers as being really offensively minded. It was how I made the biggest contribution to the team. So I think, Mm -hmm. you know, really understanding what your role is and how to really benefit the team is such an important lesson Mm -hmm. and um, something that 
that I will carry with me always. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I relate to your competitive <laughs> driven spirit, which is a lot of entrepreneurs <laughs> feel this way. So I, I relate to it. You say you have a, a superwoman complex. Um, what, is, what is that about? So I think, you know, one of the challenges I, I see with being a breakthrough woman in the, the time period of my career is um, it's kind of a joke with, with my husband and I that, you know, it's me, pick me, pick me. I can do more. I can do more. And it's really a, it's not healthy because I think we do need to learn how to say no more, stay more focused, not spread ourselves so thin because whether we like it or not, we're still managing the bulk of the life of the family. And that's even lead breadwinners, right? Um, Secondly, that we, you know, are trying, we have to do that much more typically in our careers to get the recognition, to get Mm -hmm. the opportunity. I remember, you know, when I was a a trader, I was given no accounts and I finally, and by the way, those two guys were given lots of prime accounts. And I Mm -hmm. went in and I said to my boss, like, give me the worst ones, right? That nobody wants. And I'm going to try to turn them around. And, yeah. and thankfully, I did. But the fact was, I had to work that much harder. I had to build mm-hmm. from scratch. They didn't. They got, they got gifted this stuff. Um, right. that, that was good for me in a lot of ways because I, you know, made me feel like, okay, I can do just about anything. But on the other hand, it didn't help me with kind of saying, no, I deserve more. Give me something that's kind of prime. Mm-hmm. And so I don't have to work so much. But it's, it also just set me up to kind of always be saying, yeah, I'll do that. I'll do that. I'll do that. Mm-hmm. And you get overscheduled, you get overburdened, and you just wear yourself out. And so mm-hmm. I don't think I've role modeled that very well for my children. And I've had a very candid discussion with them around that. Yeah. And it's something I have to continually work on is setting those right. boundaries and learning how to say no. Yeah, it's good stuff. I mean, I I have been called an underdog before. I mean, all the guys in the industry, very male dominated. And, you know, I'm just kind of like, let me earn it. Let me earn your business, you know, and let me prove myself. And and we have to. We're not Guys don't always have to do that. Uh, but but we do, and and you and I have uh, taken it on and said we'll d- we'll do it. And you said talked about being true to yourself, setting boundaries. And this goes as a follow up question to the superwoman complex. You have a twenty four to forty eight hour rule here uh, about where you commit your time, which is really good because I I have been very impulsive and yeah I'll do that I, I can do that I have the time. And I regret it. Um, but but talk about the 24 to 48 hour rule here to take on things. Sure. So this is one I learned the hard way. Uh, this me pick me. I used to always when anybody called, I'd say sure, before I really kind of thought it through. And then you end up, you know, kind of committing to things that are just scattered all over. So I have developed a a rule over the years where I wait 24 to 48 hours, even if I know it's something I really want to do, I'm going to wait. And so it gives you a chance to kind of weigh the pros and cons. Is this aligned with what I said I was going to focus on? Mm -hmm. And then also given whatever is going on at the time, is it the right time to be doing this? I'm involved in a lot of elder care, which I think you and I talked about. And 
you know, I've gotten better at it. This week, I was asked to do an event out of town. I was also asked to speak at another conference next week. And in both cases, I said no. And I was very clear about it, even though they both were wonderful opportunities. And I was asked by dear friends. And I just said, mm-hmm. listen, I'm traveling the first two weeks of May. I can't be out of town four weeks in a row. It's not good mm-hmm. for me. I won't be good for you. And also, you know, I have obligations in terms of elder care mm-hmm. and, and quite frankly, also my firm. Um, it's not always great for me to be gone for a month. So, sure. you know, they understood. And mm-hmm. I think the, the one, my husband often says to me, guilt is such a wasted emotion. I don't know why women carry around the guilt we do. We hate saying no. I know. And maybe I'm just, I'm being too blanketed of a a response, but this is my only way. And what I would also say in that 24 to 48 hours is now it gives me a chance to talk it through with my husband, who is the calm in our storm and, Mm -hmm. um, and just get a different perspective. Right. Yeah. I, I agree with what you're saying. I work with an executive coach still, even though I'm not working right now. And she said something to me that you said in your book, which is every time you say yes to something, you're saying no to something else. And that no to something else is big. It's sort of the opportunity cost of, I wanted to spend more time with my kids or my grandkids. I wanted to travel. Yet I've booked all these things that I said I would do. And you and I, when we say we're going to do something, we're there. You know, we're not going to say, hey, I'm going to cancel. You know, it's a right. lot easier to turn them down at the beginning. I, I just don't cancel, you know, so, but I do... I do regret taking taking things on, and uh, this is a good good rule of thumb to give yourself some time. Um, yeah, as we kind of close out with a few more questions, um, you uh, you battled an eating disorder uh, when you were younger. Talk about that, and any any kind of advice you would give. Um, you were you were very vulnerable about that. Some women have eating disorders; they don't talk about it, but but you. You did, and I think I think women, executive, ambitious women, need to hear this because, you know, it's something that we tend to hide. You know, right? Yes, yes. So, so um, I was anorexic in college, and um, really was most severe going into my sophomore year of college, um, and I, it, you know, at the end of the day, I know that it was about control. I felt like I didn't have control, and I won't go into all the psychological reasons around that, but a couple lessons learned coming, coming through that. Um, number one, it was interesting who came to me in very appropriate ways to support me and understand that it was a mental health issue that obviously was demonstrated through the lack of eating, but, and then who came to me in highly inappropriate ways, uh, trying to be, you know, very firm and, you know, I don't want to be around you if you're going to be like this type of thing, which Mm -hmm. uh, really does not help as we know. So, um, it was, it was a really good learning experience. What brought me out of it most was actually hockey. It, it dramatically impacted my my play on the ice. I mm. stunk because I was I didn't have the muscle mass. I didn't have the body weight. Um, I was getting mm. yes. I didn't have the nutrition. I was getting you know thrown around everywhere. And um, so that that I realized was a really important thing in my life. And I wanted to get back on track. What I also learned is that 
whether it's therapy or coaching, it always has a place. And and it's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength. I was not offered therapy. I will tell you, I am very different with my children. And I've always said, if, if you think you want coaching or therapy, absolutely go for it. We all mm-hmm. need it. Um, and I think that was the other piece of it is just really understanding that therapy was considered shameful as eating disorders were also considered shameful. And I think that's, that's just a bias that is unhealthy mm-hmm. in its, its full sense. So mm-hmm. I think, um, you know, just knowing that you, you need help and getting the people mm-hmm. around you to give you that mm-hmm. support is really yeah. important. It's really misunderstood. Eating disorders are really misunderstood. It's, and it's uh, partly, you know, you're trying to control your body, but there is a big, uh, big component of perfectionism there and a big, a big component of control, you know, in, in women and men that have anorexia. Yes. Right? Um, and, and it manifests itself in other areas of our life. Uh, anxiety, control, you know, perfectionism. Right. And I think, you know, it, it kind of relates to the book, too. Um, and as you said, Susan, I, I tell a lot of very vulnerable stories in that book. But the reason I wrote the book is really twofold. Um, one was to say, you have to look at your past, your present and design your future. And then to take people through these six different areas of life. So to the point you just made, you can't take health and put it on the side. You can't take um, relationships and just say, oh, well, it may not be good at home, but that's not going to flow over into work or my community. So as you know, in the book, there's six areas of life that that I focus on. And those Mm -hmm. are relationships, um, health, spirituality, community, and play, and job purpose. And mm-hmm. I go through all those, and purpose being, you know, maybe your, your purpose is how you get back to the community. could be any number of things. But you have to go through and really look at those and say, how are they interconnected? Um, and then going forward, they're not going to all be six equal pieces of the pie. Where am I going to focus? Where What's most important to me? So, coming through that eating disorder time, as I said, it was also a time to reevaluate what was important to me in my life and what was I doing to inhibit those things from being a part of my life by my behavior of, of not eating. So, you know, just looking at your life and saying, okay, you got to constantly reassess and mm-hmm. say, what's, where, where do I want to spend time? And, and we've certainly learned that in the last couple of years through COVID. So, I think that's a really important piece of this is to say, mm-hmm. you know, optimal, optimal wealth cannot be achieved without optimal health, but optimal health is looking at all six pieces of this pie mm-hmm. and how yeah. how we live intentionally. Sure, yeah, not just physical, but emotional, spiritual, and sometimes we can live in denial. Right, and I think women don't give themselves the time to reflect enough. And that's yeah. Yeah. another reason I wrote the book, is to yeah. say, okay, if you're not going to sit there and be quiet, then sit there with a book that will make you think. Because yes. I want to send them through some of those exercises. Fantastic. Yeah, wonderful, uh, wonderful book. Um, and I'll mention it here again at the end. Um, yeah, last question for you as we wrap up. Um, 
You say that uh, the best decision of your life was choosing your husband, Jeff. There are no words to describe this man's unwavering support for my dreams. The first time my mom met him, she described him as a secure guy, uh, one who did not need to prove his masculinity or power. And uh, I, I am married to a Jeff. I have one of those guys. And uh, he's been really integral and a big part of my success and happiness in life. And it sounds like the same thing with you and Jeff. Yes, I, I really think, so as, as you might guess from kind of our conversation, I'm a visionary, um, have a ton of energy, and I can get easily distracted and, and run a little too fast, as we've talked about. So, Jeff is really the calm in our storm, and I, I do think we're really good for each other because we, we are a good balance. There are times where he needs my nudge. Um, yeah. But I think, you know, what, what Jeff has taught me most is how to value what comes from within. And everybody sees the Heather that's kind of out there doing, 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 right? And I get accolades for that. And so that to some extent, that affirmation makes you do that more and more. He's been the one that's helped me with no the most. He's been the one that's helped me really figure out the balance that we needed to raise three kids. And, um, as you and I have also talked about, adult children don't need you any less. They need you differently. And so, just maintaining those relationships and that we were going to have different roles with our kids. Um, but as I said, it's he really helps me with the whole package. How do I bring it all together? And, mm-hmm. um, and asking me sometimes the questions that I don't want to answer because he knows that I need to be thinking about those questions and answer them. So mm-hmm. I'm so grateful that he will reinforce for me the slowing down more than he will the speeding up. And I think outside in our world, we get a lot more accolades for the speeding up. And I right. think we need to have those people who give that balance to us. Of, mm-hmm. No, it's okay to take time for yourself. Right. We're not really good at, yeah. as women to, in doing yeah. that. I didn't have many clients tell me, Susan, you need to slow down, you know, uh, <laughs> or are you taking care of yourself? I didn't have that. I needed to do it for myself, which I really wasn't good at, but I needed my husband to tell me, you know, look, you know, you're, you're burning it at both ends. You know, you need to slow down. You can say no to him and it's hard for us to say no. Um, but yeah, really good advice and, and really important part of our lives, you know, the, our partners. And uh, yeah, same, same thing here. Women that he is with, he's looking for this in his life. And so while this book is really answering the challenge that faces perhaps my generation, the generation above me, and probably uh, at least half a generation below me as to how they've been treated by the industry and and haven't been able to find their voice, I have great hope that this model is not going to appeal to just women. It's going to appeal to the secure men that mm-hmm. want that strong relationship, that strong family life, whether you know they're in a heterosexual relationship, whether they're single, whatever. It's, it's all of us. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm hopeful because I think yeah. the industry can move that way. Definitely. Great talk today, Heather. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for taking the time. Great book. I've read it. Uh, I will recommend it. Lumination, Heather Edinger with Luma Wealth.
Thank you so much, Susan. It's been a total delight. And uh, I, I look forward to hearing more of your future guests. You're doing a great job. Thank you for all you do. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leading She. Please check out many other Leading She episodes, which are wonderful. We discuss challenges these accomplished women have overcome in their careers. Please subscribe to this podcast and rate it and review it. Follow Leading She on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And visit our website, leadingshe.com, where we have ideas and wisdom for women leaders. 